In today's message, I want to teach on the topic of family as it relates to the work of the triune God in salvation. That is, the gracious work of God to save sinners and make them into, his, into a people for Himself. Mind you, not just any old people, but His very own family, which our Father God is sovereignly made through the gospel of the Son by the divine person of the Holy Spirit who regenerates dead spiritual hearts with no pulse, flatlined, dead spiritual hearts, no pulse, flatlined. He regenerates them by the Spirit and makes them beat again. Doom, 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 doom. By His power and by His grace. Very simply to state it, I want to talk about the topic of family and the reality that when God saves, He makes us family. It seemed fitting to talk about family today for at least three reasons. First, because this afternoon at 4 o'clock we're having a family business meeting which is something that many churches do not have as regular rhythms in their congregational lives, let alone formal family membership. I can think of many churches that don't even have church membership. Uh, they might use the word, but, you know, the members in the church actually have no say in anything. They're not actually family members. They're just, you know, numbers that they count in terms of attendance and whatnot, and that breaks my heart. Uh, for us, uh, membership and, and family meetings are, are, are a part of our calendar. We put it on the calendar at the beginning of the year. It's a big part for families to get together. This church has been here for over 60 years and our mother church for over 100 years. And, and, and this is what we do as, as congregations. Families get together. Functional families get together. Uh, parents say, hey, we're going to have a family meeting. And you sit down with kids and you talk about what's going on in the life of the family. Older siblings, you, you get together, you know, when mom and dad are old. And you say, hey, we've got to have a meeting. We've got to figure out what to do with mom and dad or what to, what to do with the estate, what to do with the welfare of the family, how to care for the members of the family. And speaking of members, uh, uh, th this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're actually going to be affirming a new sister into our home, into our family. And so it's important for you to be there as a family to, to welcome new family members into membership and, and to gather and say, hey, we're a family and this actually matters. This isn't like just a thing on the church calendar, like, you know, whatever, that movie night thing or the youth group thing or the, this whatever thing. This is family. This is important. So I want to talk about family because of that. Second, I want to talk about family because it seemed fitting uh, and, uh, following last week's sermon, Faithful Fishing. Uh, I exposited last week in my message chapter 1, verses 1 through 20 of the Gospel of Mark, a passage in which Jesus graciously and miraculously calls some of his first disciples to become a part of his family, leaving behind their own families and the family business of fishing. Uh, in fact, playing on that business of fishing, Jesus said to those, those guys, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, don't worry if you weren't here last week. You're like, oh, man, I missed that. And you're riffing off of that one. I'm going to be lost today. This will be a self-contained message. But again, I wanted to talk about family because last week it just it, it set it up. And today we have a family meeting. And, and, and so I think that's important. Now, now if, you, if you missed last week and even if you were here last week, let me remind you of the radical nature of Jesus' call to fishermen to follow after him. Uh, I, I shared with you in the message last week about the radical sociological context of this line, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is seeing able-bodied sons leaving their family business of fishing, particularly in an honor-shame family culture with a demanding economy that required families working together in order to survive. And those guys just dropped their fishing nets and left them in order to join the family of Jesus' father? and enter into the business of the eternal son in the flesh of fishing after souls? You left your dad, you left your family, shame on you. 
follow after this nomadic rabbi who no one knows who he is. Like, what are you doing? You left it all for that? It'd be like senior year, you know, you got like two classes left or whatever, and you just walk away. You, you just got recruited. You've been training your whole life to whatever, make it to the NBA, and you're in the top pick, and you just walk away. Like, what, what are you guys doing? You know, your family sacrificed so much to get you here, and you just walk away. Now, unlike those illustrations of, you know, dropping out of college or not going to the NBA or whatever, I mean, it's kind of no harm, no foul or whatever to the family. It's like, oh, well, you would have been rich and we could have benefited off that, but we're still financially okay. In the case of them walking away from their family fisher business, this would mean harm to the rest of their family, not to mention their community who were relying on them for this good. I quoted to you last week from a New Testament scholar and a historian, Dr. Joseph Hellerman, in particular from a book that he wrote that's a very helpful one, When the Church Was Family. He, he wrote this book and he unpacked the sociocultural setting of, of this passage, and so I referenced it in terms of Mark chapter 1 and how radical it was for, a, a, you know, to abandon your family, family business, economy, and all of those intersections. And also how Dr. Hellerman in this book uh, uh, unpacks how it's at the heart of being a disciple of Jesus to know that you're in family with Jesus. He recaptures in this uh, book, Dr. Hellerman does, the vision of Scripture that, that, that God isn't just saving people and letting them go on about their merry lives. He's actually saving people and bringing them into a family, and they are then called to family. This is radical in North America because for many people, church is a box that you tick on Sunday that you attended. Jesus didn't die on a cross to make church attenders. He died on a cross to make sinners into sons. And, and we are called then into family. I uh, highly recommend this book. Anything Dr. Hellerman has written is excellent. And, and can I say, just in terms of, you, you know, you often hear me referencing books or whatever, and like, oh, some, some scholar or whatever is going to be born. Let me say, Dr. Hellerman, I know him personally. He's a friend of mine. Salt of the earth. Uh, he, he's not just some academic who's writing books on the Bible. He's living this out. In fact, I, I felt like I just got to show you a picture. He's so important to me. He hooded me for my, my first doctorate. Here's a picture at my graduation. I mean, this guy is like, he's the real deal. He knows his Bible, and he's out on the street just loving people and living this thing out. So, so pick up the book. Think about this. But in today's message, I'm going to be kind of riffing off of some of those ideas and more importantly, the Word of God. I want to build on the important reality of family today. Because we were talking about it last week, we've got a family thing going on today, you know, uh, you know I, I want to build on this reality. I want to dig into scripture. So I need you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to dig into this text. In fact, there's really not too much digging that needs to be done in the text. I think if we simply read it, we're going to see what the text says without too much exposition necessary. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. This is in the New Testament, and before we get into the text of 1 John chapter 2, I want to take you, I want to reference at least, I want to take you into the Hebrew Bible so that you can see the continuity between the Testaments, the first and the second, the old and the new. These Testaments of our Bible are unfolding a redemptive story of God and how God is saving in His triune love a people, a family, for Himself by His grace. The title of my message today is, It's a Family Affair. Now, when I think about family, all sorts of things come to mind. I was, uh, I, I, I was born into a home with married parents, but there was all sorts of things going on and, and brokenness, and a lot of my childhood memories are, are, are filled with pain and whatnot. My parents divorced. In fact, against the backdrop of this is actually a, a picture uh, 
my dad's side of the family largely. If you look close enough, you'll see my big head right there, kind of faded in the back. Um, yes, I was a C-section, poor mom. But lots of smiles in the picture, and yet behind the smiles, and perhaps many of you have family pictures like this of lots of smiles, but behind the smiles there's a lot of pain. You know, the camera comes out, cheese, and we all smile, snap, but then, you know, you kind of go back to business as usual. And there's, there's a lot of pain in families. There's a lot of brokenness in families. And I want to explain why, I, I, you know, as we dig into family, I, I think that why that's strategic for the devil to attack families because it's fundamental to the message of God's redemption of humanity. The title of my message today is It's a Family Affair. I'm, I'm, I, I'm playing on the song that was written by the 1960s through 80s American funk, soul, R&B, rock band, Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, they had a song, It's a Family Affair. It came out in 1971. It was the most successful hit of, of Sly and the Family Stone's career, peaking at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks, for five weeks on the Billboard R&B singles. It was a very popular song on the radio and, and even soundtracks today. Decades later, uh, R&B singer Mary J. Blige borrowed the title for her hit single, Family Affair, produced by Dr. Dre. It's, it's a song, It's a Family Affair. I'm not going to sing it, but, you know, there you go. We'll see if we can get Landon or John. Maybe Cameron can play the horn and we can do our rendition. It relates to this original song, It's a Family Affair, riffing on this with my title this morning. Music historians tell us of the story of this band, Sly and Family Stone. They were like family. They, they started doing music together. They were like family. It's even in their name, the Family Stone. In the 60s, they're, they're, they're playing their little hearts out and uh, they get popular. And with fame comes pain, drama, Drugs, darkness. In light of this, many bi biographers and fans think of this song, It's a Family Affair, not as a celebration of family, but as a look at how family can go wrong. With these memorable lines that check in on the very nature versus nurture debate in terms of you know, how things are broken, as it relates to the apparent propensity of humans to do wrong. In fact, um, you, you know, uh, this whole issue of nature and nurture, that whole debate, are, are we born broken or do we learn to be broken or whatever, it's settled in the Hebrew Bible. It's unpacked through the canon of Scripture that we have in front of us today. And so the first point on your outline is the biblical language of family and salvation in Scripture. As we open up our Bibles, it begins with the story of God the Father who is making a family for Himself. In the book of Genesis, which you have referenced here, the first point, biblical language of the family and salvation in Scripture. The first subpoint in the Hebrew Bible, you have the book of Genesis in the opening chapters. God creates the cosmos and all living things. Humanity is specifically described as unique among God's creations, for they are said to be made in the image of God, which among many dimensions, being made in the image of God, the Imago uh, Dei, many dimensions. There's the ontological dimension, the relational dimension, the vocational dimension. There is also, fourthly, the familial dimension. You see, the image God is not just what we are, ontological, not just how we relate to others and to God, relational, not just doing His will and work, vocational, but it is also familial. You see, to be made in the image of God is to be made family. Children image their parents. I'm not just talking biologically. You, you know, you, you look at your children, you go, oh, yeah, you know, it kind of looks like you. That's not what I'm getting at. I have adopted children, and they image me. They image me. You see, it's in the way that they live. What's that adage like father, like son? The way that they live, who they represent, they represent our home. And this is why as parents, when you, know, you send your kids places, you often find yourselves, right, if they do something wrong, you're upset with them because they image who? You, your home. They reflect your image. 
Now, sadly, humanity has taken the gift of imaging God and rebelled against their Creator. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid explains what this has done. If you look up here, being created in the image of God, they were indeed God's children, enjoying close fellowship with their Heavenly Father daily in the Garden of Eden. Yet with the fall, the image of God in them was marred and their relationship as the children of God was lost. They became outcasts from the Garden, alienated from the presence of God, children of His wrath, This is the condition into which all human beings are now born, aliens and strangers with respect to God. That settles the debate of nature and nurture. It's an issue of nature. We're born this way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Okay? In Genesis chapter 3, the triune God promises to save a people for himself among those who otherwise were destined and deserving a divine wrath. In this section, God speaks of those who are his promised seed who would save, who would save. A promised seed that would come through the woman who would save people out of the kingdom of darkness. And it also speaks of the seed of the serpent who would be in the darkness. Two families. Jesus picks up this language in John chapter 8, verse 44, if you're taking notes, speaking of the seed as children, two families. There are those, and we read this at the beginning of the worship service today, John 8, recall, there are those who are children of the serpent, and there are those who are children of the promise. The promise of Genesis 3 moves to Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham and his seed. By faith, God saves Abraham and makes his seed into his own children. Such that in the Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22 that you have referenced here, we read the Lord say, Israel is my son, my firstborn, quote unquote. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read of God choosing Israel to be his very own out of all people. The prophet Ezekiel that you have referenced here in the 16th chapter of this divinely revealed oracle, he he gives a vision of an abandoned newborn that is covered in the blood of his afterbirth in verse 6, discarded on the street, discarded on the street, a child who's been abandoned in the street, just in the afterbirth, just out on the street, just discarded. In fact, we also read this. If If you came to church early, came to church on time for the public reading of God's word, we read that passage. And what does God do in that passage? He comes to that abandoned baby and he rescues that baby and he makes that baby his own. That baby becomes his family, Israel. Israel. And then in Ezekiel 16, 8, let me quote what we read at the beginning of service today. I passed by you. I saw you. And behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my garment over you and I covered your nakedness and I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine declares the Lord God. And then in verse 9, it goes on to say, Then I bathed you with water, washed off the blood from you, and anointed you with oil. God is seen as an adoptive father welcoming a discarded child out of the darkness and bringing him into the seed of promise, his family. So you see, the story of the Hebrew Bible is about God making humanity as his children. Humanity rebelling against their father and becoming children of wrath, children of the darkness, but God in his grace then coming and rescuing and adopting and making children to image him in family and in the world, children who had rebelled and made a mess of things. Now, in the ancient world, in a culture of honor and shame, no father, no father would welcome you back. You know, if you're, if you're North American and you've lived here your whole life, this might sound radical. If, if, you're, if you're from another culture, the global south, Middle East or something, you, you know, you're like, oh yeah, my uncle's like that. Yeah, he hasn't talked to his kids in years, you know. Uh, it, it, it's just over. The culture of the Bible, like, no, it's over. You, you disrespected and defamed your dad, it's donezo. 
That's not how that operates in their culture. But God, but God in that culture revealed to those people in that culture that the God of heaven is no father trapped in culture. Oh no, the God of heaven is transcendent and thankfully gracious to not only welcome us back, but more to culturally and scandalously welcome us to his table and to go get us. You, you, you might find an example in the ancient days in those cultures where maybe a father let him back in. You pay penance, you clean the yard, you do some stuff, whatever, and then maybe I'll let you back in. The scandalous part is that the father prepares a table and then runs out to seek and to save his son who's rebelling against him. The election of the promised seed of Eve, of Noah, the godly line of Abraham and Israel is a story of God the Father rescuing a prodigal son for himself, which in prophecy and history would ultimately come through his own son, the eternal son, who was one with the Father in spirit, who would become the seed of the woman by the Spirit, who would take on the very DNA, the blood of Abraham, and also the blood of David, the king of the people. That said, it is worth noting in this theology of family and salvation that David, the king of the people, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abram, is described in the Hebrew Bible as God's son. Israel's God's son, David's God's son. Professor Dr. Ian Duguid explains, in addition to Israel's adoption as God's son, the Old Testament also speaks of the adoption of the Davidic king as God's son. The unique physical, the unique, excuse me, privilege relationship meant that he and his descendants could not be utterly cast off by God in a way that Saul, that's the king before David, was cast off because of his failure. Rather, when they sinned, they would be chastened by God as a father chastens his son. It's discipline. That's what loving fathers do. Right? Dads, dads say, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, I remember thinking, you've lost your mind, Dad, because, uh, you know, that, that, you know, I, that required solar cane when you were done uh, and ice packs. I don't spank children who aren't mine. I don't send kids on timeout who aren't mine. Go on timeout. I'd love to, actually, but, you know, I, I can't because they're not my own. Discipline itself is an acknowledgement that you are in relationship. Dr. Duguid ends this line here, right? You, you see, you see they're, they're in this relationship. They are absolutely in this relationship. This is, uh, this is absolutely incredible. The covenant between God and the line of David was one unbreakable, no matter on what the offense. These, these twin themes of adoption of Israel and the line of, of David find a common fulfillment in Jesus Christ in this divine nature. Christ is God's son from all eternity. Yet as the true Israel and the true son of David, he is the heir of all the promises of sonship made to Israel and David. As a result, when we were united to Christ by faith, we too receive and share in that sonship and the privileges that go along with it. Now this brings us to the New Testament, the, the second subpoint on the outline here. So our opening is the biblical language of family and salvation. We see the story of the Hebrew Bible is about God making children for himself, children rebelling against him. He, he being this, uh, you know, contra the culture, a, a radical father who runs out and rescues them and starts bringing them home and making them into his family. And he gives these promises to Abram and to David and ultimately Jesus comes to fulfill this. The New Testament documents uh, record the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible and fulfillment to Christ, and they give the historical data to anyone who's a skeptic to say, look, this really happened. In saying that it is fulfilled, it is not to say that God is done with His promises to Abraham and David, uh, specifically building a family through Israel to extend His blessings to the earth. Oh no, oh no, oh no. We see loudly and clearly in Romans chapter 11 
that God is not done saving people through Israel and that his revelation that we read here through the Apostle Paul, we see Israel coming to salvation in God, God taking away their sin. For as Paul says in Romans 11, verse 29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. The Father will not abandon his adopted children. We saw that in Ezekiel. Though, though you, I, I rescued you in Ezekiel. Remember, he, he rescues this child. He makes him his own. He gives him everything. And then, and then that child goes out and plays the harlot. And what, what does God do? He still comes. Because his covenant is unconditional, the one that he made with Abram. Blessed be his name for his unconditional love. And through David's seed, the Messiah, Jesus, brings in a new program for bringing people into God's family through the church of Jesus Christ. We, we, we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that the Gentiles with the Jews are heirs according to the promise. Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, quote unquote. And then in chapter 4, verse 6 of Galatians, we read Paul saying, and I quote, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. All of this, brothers and sisters, gives us a theological context for understanding that a moment ago when I said brothers and sisters, I wasn't being churchy. I was being real. I use the word bro a lot. I use it with my friends who aren't saved. I say, what's up, bro? But they're really not my brothers. My brothers are here. My sisters are here. It's not just church language. It's a reality. So this gives us a theological context for understanding the passage that I ask you to turn to, 1 John chapter 2. And in this passage, we see familial language that is used to explain what has happened to us in salvation. A salvation that extends back to the creation and the fall and the rebellion and through the promised seed of Israel and the one who has come, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, down to his church who proclaims the gospel and the hope of Israel that will come one day to the ends of the earth. So we have the theological context, now the historical context, 1 John it's a book, but it's, all, it's more technically a letter that was written by the historic Apostle John who personally knew Jesus, who wrote about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. I'll quote that later in this message. Whose writing style in 1 John matches the Gospel of John. And in the letter, John encourages believers who are, they were, they were emotionally struggling with ministry, struggling with life. I mean, you know, we forget that these are real people. These are, these are real people reading these letters that they were, and real people writing these letters. These are people who are you know, getting in fights with their kids and their spouses and their jobs and, you know, and, and trying to share the message of Jesus and catching flack for it and getting canceled. Canceling isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, that was, that's been going on since the fall. They're, they're just trying to live life. And so John writes this letter to encourage them. Draw your eyes at chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. That's Christ. So that when he appears, speaking of Christ's return... We may have confidence and not shriek away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know him, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet. What will we'll be... We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. So they're wrestling with sin. They're discouraged. They're feeling down. They're going through stuff. It's crazy, like, ideas floating around the culture. 
Uh, I'll spare you talking about Gnosticism and stuff, and that's probably confusing them about what's going to happen when Jesus returns, or proto-Gnosticism. John encourages them. He says, hey, like, walk in righteousness. Hey, children, we're children of the Father. When the Son comes again, we'll be found doing the Father's work. Don't be discouraged by the world. The world doesn't know our Father and how good He is. They're, they're, they're not in His family. They're not His children. We are. John says not only are we called His children, we are His children. As I said a moment ago, when I call you brothers and sisters, I'm not being churchy. It's, it's a reality. This isn't a mere metaphor. This is, this, is actually, this is actually what is going on. Look at how John described it in the Gospel of John. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. In the Gospel of John, he says, Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Speaking of Israel as God's Son, He came to the people of Israel. But as many as received Him, the remnant of Israel and those outside of Israel, to them He gave the right to become what? Children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, these verses of being children of God and being born in the family of God, they could be familiar to us. Even saying brothers and sisters can be familiar to us. And there is the risk, as I, I, I said last week, sharing the familiar colloquialism about familiarity. Familiarity can breed what? Content. When you know something and you've heard it enough, you can tune it out. Uh, my, my, my kids, our house is loud. We got seven kids, okay? It's just loud. It's messy, you know. Uh, you know, if you're like, Pastor Matt's never invited me to, to, to his house. I'm doing you a favor. It's chaos over there, right? And it's just always, you know, poor Anderson. I mean, it's just, you know, Jeremiah. It's just always, you know, and in the midst of it, my wife doesn't like noise. Uh, I, I, can, I can have music going, listen to a podcast, be reading a book and typing something. I just, for whatever reason, I like it, but she can't stand it. And so the kids, uh, mom, 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 mom. And uh, mom, she just, it's so familiar. Mom, 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 mom. They just tone it out. So when the kids want to get my wife's attention, they say, Erica. <laughs> she goes, she goes, what? You know, uh, you know, and I'm like, don't call your mom that. And she's like, well, if I say mom, she's not going to turn her head, right? <laughs> When it's familiar, you just, you know, it's like mom, dad, you know, you just, you, you, you tune it out. Child of God, brother, sister, born of God. Look, same with the gospel. Oh, he died for me. Yeah, I know that stuff. Can we talk about something else? No, no, no. This is it. These aren't the ABCs and the one, two, threes. This is it. This is everything to us. Don't miss out on how awesome your salvation is. He saved you and brought you home. Dr. Duguid insightfully observes, and I quote, perhaps one of the reasons that we fail to appreciate the privilege of being adopted as God's children is because we've never considered ourselves to be orphans. We tend to think that by nature everyone is a child of God. And I would add to Dr. Duguid that when we hear the word orphan, we think of Orphan Annie. Oh, cute little, cute little orphan. Not what we saw described in Ezekiel. Discarded, bloody, messy, muddy, unwanted. Now, I covered the theological ground and I read this text here because I want you to really understand this and because familiarity breeds content, I want to take you into, second point on your outline, the biblical world and the background so that you understand how these original readers read this. What is a family? 
The word family comes from familia. It is a group of people who are connected socially and psychologically by consanguity, which means blood relation, contract, that is marriage, covenant, that is by adoption, culture, and or by co-residence. There are various ways that you can be brought into a family, consanguity or adoption or just being, you know, uh, my in-laws, they're Venice hippie people. They just had all kinds of kids they raised because they found them on the streets or whatever. And you're like, that's Uncle so-and-so. I'm like, I've never met him. Yeah, he lived there for 10 years. I'm like, okay, nice to meet you, right? You just enter into the family and they welcome you in. And basically every society in all of human history, the family is an essential building block of human flourishing. And as a result of this, as I said at the beginning, I think this is why it's strategic for the devil to attack the family unit. And don't say to yourself, I'm not married or I don't have kids, so this isn't about me. No, everyone in this room is in a family. Broken or better, you're in a family. And the devil knows that he can go for that because this attacks at the very image of God in the very beginning of things. Now, in modern Western mind, when we hear the word family, we typically don't think the way that they thought about it in the biblical world. So it's important for me to teach you this. In our culture, the nuclear family consists of two adults and two kids, preferably one boy, one girl. Get your boy, you get your girl, snip, snip, you're done, you know. American dream, yeah, you know. That, that's what you're told, you know, that's what, what the family is. Uh, we, we had two boys and, you know, uh, if, you know, and we'd be walking around or whatever, you'd be at the store, oh, there's your boys, yeah, yeah you just got to get a girl, then you're done. You're like, no, no, that's not my worldview. But anyway, the modern nuclear family is typically romanticized, and in recent times it seeks to have pre-marriage dating lifestyle and, and, you know, cohabitation and minimal children because children get in the way, right? Two children, boy and a girl, done. That's the modern notion. The nuclear family is small and compact. It is not, it, it is not though, the way that they looked at it in the Bible. Now, mind you, I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you, I know we've got some families in the church that got one boy, one girl. I'm not picking, you know, that's awesome. I know some awesome families with one boy, one girl. I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying that from the biblical perspective, as they were originally reading these texts, how their culture operated and how God revealed himself in that culture so that then we can appreciate it. There's nothing wrong with having one boy, one girl. I'm not, don't, don't miss here. I'm just trying to help you understand the way that they looked at it in the biblical world. Um, so the whole notion of family, the whole notion of the nuclear family, 1947, Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Um, it, it, this is kind of as old as it goes back. I mean... For thousands of years, the, the family unit was bigger and it was more robust. When you talked about family, you weren't just talking about your kids. You were talking about your cousins, your parents, your grandparents, your uncles. It was everyone. That, 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 that's your family. We talk about the immediate family. In, in the biblical world, it was like, is there a non-immediate family? Like, what does that mean? The family is big. The family is a blessing. It is ordained by God. It was ordained by God to picture himself and to provide for our protection and comfort. As a result, they viewed the family as central and more important than the individual. Ancient people saw the group, A on your outline, as greater than the priority over the individual. This is the antithesis of, of modern ethos and the narratives of modern culture as well. I, I am amazed as, uh, as a parent watching kids' movies with uh, you know, kids and how many of them are about the disregard for family. And I'm amazed personally that I didn't notice it on my own. I, I married a, a woman who hates the Little Mermaid, uh, the original one, not entering into the fray of the, you know, but, you know, it's like this, this whole movie is about this like 16 year old princess, teenage girl, Ariel, who doesn't like her family, dishonors her, fa- her father and follows her heart. 
Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Love yourself. Find yourself. It's all about the individual. And as a result, we pursue family this way. It's about you being in love. It's about you finding your soulmate. It's about personal happiness. And no wonder the divorce rate is what it is. We've been sold a modern bill of goods. Uh, something the ancients grasped. Marriage wasn't about your happiness or personal fulfillment. No, it was about something bigger. It was tied to the flourishing of others, to the community. Be on your outline. In the ancient world, a person's most important group was his or her blood, and I would add, adoptive family. Dr. Bruce Molina, he's a noted historian, New Testament scholar who works in Bible backgrounds, he, he writes this, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a family responsible to the family for his or her actions, destiny, career development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in a family and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if it is in accord with family norms and only if the action is in the family's best interest. The family has priority over the individual member and may use the members of the family to facilitate family-oriented goals and objectives. In, in, in bigger families, this becomes more apparent because it's like, hey, I need you to do the dishes. Well, I, I'm, none of my dishes are in there. You know, it's like, yeah, but we're a family. I need you to do the laundry. You know, it's like, well, my clothes are fine. No, no, we're a family. Uh, recently, I had someone put one piece of clothes in the washer. It's like, are you kidding me? You couldn't put others in there? We're a family. Uh, Dr. Molina is really getting at this. The ancient family was a big deal. It was bigger than the individual and the most important group in one's life. And when in this significant group, the most significant bond was actually, get this, the most significant bond in the Bible world in a family was not husband and wife. It was not spouses. It was siblings. That leads you to see on your outline. Now, I'm not saying whether or not this is correct. Again, like I said before, you, you can have a boy and a girl and be done. Whatever. I'm not making any assessment of that. That's your business. I could care less. Uh, that's, that, that's you. If you want me to care, you can, you know, we can talk about it or whatever. But that, what I'm saying is the way that they saw it, the world that God revealed himself in, the way they saw things is a part of that revelation. God's not speaking in a vacuum. So he's using their language and their ideas and their concepts to reveal himself. Okay? I personally would find something really unhealthy about a husband who's like, honey, you know, in the biblical world, siblings were more important. So uh, me and Nate Dog here, we're just gonna, we're gonna finish up Fortnite for the rest of the night and uh, you can do devotions by yourself. You know? Uh, you know, my brother and I are going out. You know, it's the most important bond. It's in the Bible. No, no, it's in the Bible background. It's not in the Bible. In any case, we have to understand that their world valued the sibling bond above all others. The closest same generational family bond in that culture was the bond between siblings. Now, on the flip, on the flippity flip, the most duplicitous and most disloyal act was the betrayal of siblings. Now, come back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve's children. What happens from the jump? Cain, Abel, Jacob, Esau, down the line. Sibling betrayal. That's the most, that's the primary bond in that culture. And that's where sin strikes, right in the center. This is a world with large families, lots of cousins, siblings stick together, economy is driven by families working together. Again, the radical nature of Jesus telling these fishermen to leave their family fishing business to join his family. No, 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 we're blood, we work together, we play together. We feed our family together. That, 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 you, you, little kids in, in, in the ancient world of the Bible, you don't go, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> what? What do you mean what do I want to be? 
My dad's a coppersmith. We're the Smiths. I'm a coppersmith. That's, that's what we do. Like that whole question would be foreign to them. Just like in that documentary, What is a Woman, where the dude from North America goes to the African village and asks the chief, what is a woman? <laughs> it's like, oh, like what, what? You don't know what a woman is? Like that's foreign to their culture. So too, it's just foreign. This is what we're about. D, to be without family or from the wrong family was a dangerous and hopeless existence. In our culture, to be sure, if you're born in the wrong family, I mean, it can be hard, but in a wonderful place like America, I mean, you know, you can work hard enough, and, and there's stories of people born in, a, you know, messy families, and they become, you know, rich, and, you know, it's like, you know, but in that world, that's not the case. That is not the case. That is not the economy. That is not the way it worked. That is not the way it worked. The family gave you your safety. The orphan would be swept into slavery. It was a slave economy, largely. You'd be victimized by the cold and the darkness. It would be hopeless. The family gave one physical standing and safety, not to mention psychological and emotional benefit. The family is critical to human flourishing. It is no wonder that the Bible begins with the biological family and the father who's making humanity to image him. The family is displayed as the creator's provision for humanity. The first family, Adam and Eve, are the prototypical husband and wife joined in marriage, one flesh, Genesis 2.24, the perfection of that abbreviated family becomes contrasted to the predominantly negative story of the family at odds with itself, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, down the line. More than any other book, Genesis is the book of families, and it tells the fall of the family as we've covered. Now, if you would move from uh, uh, 1 John over to the Gospel of John and, and find your way to chapter 1, and let's talk about the basics to family and the reality in the New Testament. We need to move quick. In the New Testament, we see God getting messy with us. We see that God comes to cleanse us and He takes our dirt upon Himself. Look at how the beginning of the, of the Gospel of John begins. It begins with the beginning to parallel the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in, in the beginning with God and all things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, there was a true light coming into the world, into every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, the eternal Son, one with the Father. And the world did not know him, and he came to his own, we read this already, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were what? Not born of blood or of the will, but of the will of God. This brings me to the sub-point under point three, basics to family reality in the New Testament. God justifies sinners, he saves them from danger, he protects them in his family, and he makes them his very own children. Take everything I just covered in terms of the ancient world and how God's revealing himself. This is the second time we've read verse 12 of the Gospel of John. Again, don't let familiarity breed content. We have been brought into a family. We talk a lot about the doctrine of justification, how when we're saved, God declares us righteous. It's a forensic metaphor justification, but family is, but salvation is also familyfication. okay? It's familyfication. In salvation, we are justified, given right standing before God, but in his courtroom, we're not just given right standing, we're also given an adoption certificate. Look up here, if you will, of our views of salvation, God and me, relationships being restored. In the language of the New Testament, justification isn't an isolated incident between God and me, it is tied to a web of soteriological images that are driven by a group. The New Testament view of salvation 
is about groups being restored together. We're restored to God, we're restored to one another. In Galatians, the doctrine of justification and familyfication or adoption are tied together. Look here on the side at Galatians chapter 3, right? The law led us to Christ. We'd be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you are sons of God through faith in Christ. Justification, familyfication. The Father makes us into children through the Son. And, and, and as John said in 1 John, it's not that we're calling you children of God, you actually are children of God. Uh, mind you, it's not that we're calling God Father, Son, Spirit, it's that He is Father, Son, Spirit. And through this triune God, the Father and the Son, by the Spirit, are at work to adopt us into the family that through the Son we become sons. Now, ladies, don't say, I don't want to be a son. The, the point of being a son, the son gets the inheritance. Trust me, you want to be sons in that regard. The Bible talks about being daughters of God as well. But sonship is something that we all want because of the right of inheritance. And in the son, we become sons, which brings me to be on the outline there. God has provided a loving big brother, Jesus, the son who, who, who disciples us in family. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is a family business. You need to learn the family business. You've been, you've been saved, brought into the family, and the family has a business. Let me teach you how the family operates. When you join a family, you need someone to teach you the ins and outs of the family. Uh, for those of you who are married, and if you married someone different, which basically everyone does, uh, you needed your, significant, uh, your spouse to teach you about his or her family. I know I did. It didn't come with the manual. I'm still learning. You know, you, it's like, hey, so what's, what's up with so-and-so? What's up? You, you need them to teach you how this works. Jesus has come to teach us about the Father's household. I have a reference here of Matthew chapter 18 in the parentheses here, and this is a passage where the disciples are asking him about forgiveness, and he's pressing into them that the, fam the family of God is to be a family of forgiveness. We don't hold grudges against each other. Peter says, how many times must we forgive? Seventy times seventy? Jesus said, I didn't say to you seven times seven. I said, 70 times seven. We're to be a, a forgiving people. We're, we're, we're servants. We're lovers. We're family. We're, 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 we're going to get messy. We're going to hurt each other. But this, this is what you've been called to. This is one of the devastating things that happened in the most recent years, you know, with, with COVID and trying to figure that whole mess out and whatever, and uh, people being outside of the church. And I, I saw in that time, you know, like marriage is falling apart, lives falling apart, all sorts of things. And you say, are we surprised when we remove ourselves? Even, even before COVID, I mean, this is always an issue. <clears throat> in a place like North America, where there's lots of churches and you can just kind of hop around and, or just show up every once in a while, if you treated your family like that, what kind of a family would you have? If I showed up for dinner with my kids once every three months, What's that going to do to them? My kids are here, they're like, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and you wouldn't be like, pick up your plate, you know, just, I, right? Like, but seriously though, right? Like, what, what kind of a family are you going to have? Further, what, what's the world going to look like? If we treat the church that way, what's going to be the result of the world? You know, often we rail against the culture, or, you know, it's the left's fault, or it's the right's fault, or it's this this politician's fault or whatever, and we don't look at ourselves because we've been called to be the light of the world, which brings me to see God uses his family for outreach to the world, welcoming the orphaned into his home. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans in John 14. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. 
He's building a home. He's building a family. And he's using us. And he's called us to go out and share the good news because through the good news, that's how he rescues and saves. We have no other medium. It's not the music. It's not the website. It's not the app. It's not the... There's, there's a, a channel of preacher sneakers. You know, it's not how cool the, the preacher is or how eloquent or whatever. It, it's none of that. It's the gospel. It's this crazy offensive message to lost people that tells them, hey, you're lost. That's the bad part. But here's the good part. There's a shepherd who will come and lead the way if you'll surrender to him. Philippians 2.15, Paul speaks of the church as, as, as children of God. And the way that we minister, the way that we reach out to the lost so often is by being a family. It's by being a family. Being raised in a broken home uh, and having parents who divorced, I longed in my childhood, and in particular in my teens, I longed to sit at a table with a dad and a mom. Uh, my dad later remarried, and I got to see some semblance of that, but in the years uh, where we were latchkey kids and we moved in with our grandparents, I would do everything that I could to spend the night at my friend's house, my friend's homes, who had married parents. I just loved being in a house with a mom and a dad and siblings. Food on the table. Um, um, did you shower? Are you okay? Matt, do you have what you need? I have, I have surrogate mothers because of this, and I'm so thankful for it. And then coming to Christ, did you realize you have a family? You are a part of a family. There's no one single here. There's no one divorced here. There's no one... You're not alone here. Like, you have a family, and the family has a business. And this family is how he often operates. You see it throughout the Bible. He uses families to reach the lost. We see this anecdotally even today. This morning in our book club, uh, we read a book by Jackie Hill Perry, and her testimony involves moving in with a, a Christian woman and learning the Christian life, and then that set her on mission. Have you heard the story of Rosario Butterfield? She was a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. She was uh, antagonistic, to say the least, towards Christianity. She was a, a, a lesbian who was living with her girlfriend partner. She earned her PhD at Ohio State. Her academic interest was in queer theory and feminist theory. She was actively writing against evangelicalism. In fact, she was working on a research paper against evangelicalism. She, she uh, wrote against promise keepers, so on and so forth, and as a part of that research, she came into contact with some evangelicals. There was a Christian man named Ken Smith. He was pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Ken and his wife, Floy, and their daughter, uh, they, they just invited her into their home for food. You hate us, you're mad at, you know, what we think about sexuality and God and sin and all this stuff. Why would you come over for dinner? Come into our family. Right? It's easy to be mad at someone who's like not inside your home. Come, come, in, come into our family. This is a great missional strategy of the church that when families are working together to reach people and welcoming them into their homes, uh, long story short, Dr. Butterfield became a believer. She walked away from that lifestyle. She repented. She came to Christ. She wrote a wonderful book. You can read about it. Listen to the title of the book. The gospel comes with a house key. The gospel comes with a house key. We're family. We're family. D, God has made us heirs of his estate as family, living for the return of our brother Jesus. 
Romans 6 that you have reference there. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. We're heirs with Him. And because we're heirs with Him, that changes, it should change the way that we live. As Jesus taught His family members, His brothers, in Matthew 6, He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In America, the family that we're living for is this so-called American dream. It's a white picket fence. It's a big yard. It's a second story. Everyone's got a room. Everyone's got a car. Everyone's got a... Everyone's got a every, it's this, this big consumer commodity with all this stuff that we think is going to make us happy. And so we go out and we get our stuff. And we stuff it all into a can. And we don't want anyone to take it. We got garages full of stuff. We got storage containers that we rent and pay money on to store our stuff. That we could just throw away and buy new stuff when the time came. We've got TV shows about opening those storage containers. Right? You get all this stuff. You put all this stuff in a can and you sit on the can. Jesus says, don't live that way. Live for your family. Get rid of your stuff. Give it away. It doesn't matter. That's not what we're living for. The final point on your outline, building the family of God in the new world. See how great the Father bestowed His love on us that we would be called children of God and such we are, we read in 1 John 3. So by conclusion, a couple points here. We function as an ancient family, not modern business. It's about gracious family relationships, not institutionalism. As a result, as a church, Delray Church, I'm not preaching to some audience out on YouTube the way most preachers do today as, as I, in my assessment. I'm talking to the saints of Delray Church. The way that we do things, are, it's just not going to make sense if we're doing it right. Because we're a mom and pop shop. And we put family first. And we care about the family. It's family first. And that means that sometimes we do things that aren't going to make business sense to modern business gurus, leadership you know, uh, uh, people, life coaches, organizational psychologists. We're a family. Family sticks together. We sacrifice for each other. We love. We don't strike back. We turn the other cheek. We forgive. We embrace. We look out for the weak and the lonely, the marginalized, the hurting, and we share life. We, are, we live in an age where the church has become disposable in Christian circles, right? We, we see people just kind of, kind of bouncing around, you know, never become a, a member, never belong, never show up for... For family stuff, it's just a box that you tick off. Second, we embed our lives and families in the church, bringing my life and kin and devoted belonging and service in the local church. Right? The church is the bride of Christ. You cannot divorce Him from His bride. I hear people say often, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Uh, sorry, Jesus doesn't like that. He said, Matt, I really like you. Man, your wife, I can't stand. No, uh, we're not, we, that, that's not working with me. That's my bride. That's my family, you see. We're called Jesus. He actually demands that you put his people over your own biological people. Recall the account in Matthew 8 where a guy says, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And what did Jesus say? He said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, in that culture, that would be so offensive not to bury your own father. New Testament scholar Dr. Wright says the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command in Matthew 8.22 is that he envisioned loyalty to himself, 
to his church as creating an alternative family. Family disciple, the, 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 Jesus' discipleship is a family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his mother or daughter is not worthy of me. This is to take, take precedence over it. Again, this is so countercultural to us because often the church will say, hey, we're, we've got this Bible study or this thing. Can you come to it? Oh, you know, I got this. My kids have this or my wife has this. You say, but which family, what, is, what has God saved you into? What, what's taking priority in our lives? Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Jesus asked. And he answered, whoever does the will of my father, right? C, we dwell in the local church as a family of grace, sharing our lives, joining our hearts in worship of the God who has saved us. Ephesians 4 talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given. Jesus has modeled that for us. Jesus is making disciples for us. Cyprian of Carthage in the 200s, a follower of Jesus, he said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God as his father. I would rephrase it, he who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters do not have God as his father. It's the point of these texts. And again, we're, we're, I might be preaching to the choir here at Del Rey, but the fact of the matter is the church in North America doesn't get this. Here's Barner Research. It just shows that churches and churches, it's not family. It's just something you go to. It's just another consumer good. The American uh, spirituality of our day is highly individualistic. It's subjective. It's ahistorical. Whereas the biblical faith that we see modeled in these texts before us today is not individualistic, it's familial, it's, it's, it's collectivist. It's not subjective, it's objective. It's, it's not ahistorical, it's actually historical and even further eschatological. The final point on your outline, we work together as adoption workers seeking to bring the spiritually orphaned home to know God's love and to worship Him. I shared earlier a quote from, Dr. Uh, uh, from the Old Testament scholar Ian, and, and he says, perhaps one of the reasons that we fail to appreciate the privilege of being adopted as God's children is because we never consider ourselves to be orphans. Um, there's a lost world out there. There's a lost world out there. And there's something wrong with a family, particularly in the ancient world, who just sees the the earnings of the family as just theirs and not to share with others. Through those fishermen, the family business of fishing, if they just said, all these fish are for us and we're not going to help the rest of the village, say, what is wrong with them? Right? If, if there was a Domino's and you went in and you're like, can I have a pizza? No, nah, these pizzas are only for us. <laughs> you know, you're like, what? How, like, no, you're, like, you're supposed to you know, share this. And so too for us, we've got this good news. We're going to come to the communion table that pictures this good news. He was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. This great feast, this table, we're going to sing to our Father. We're going to sing to the Son by the Spirit. We're going to come to... Every family has a table. This is our table that has been prepared for us by the Father and the Son. But if we just come and we partake of the symbols, but we never share the message, what kind of a family is that? In close, the word family could be a loaded term depending on your upbringing. With that said, even with our brokenness and messed up experiences as a family, we all have family longings. And you know why we have family longings? Because we were made in the image of God. After all, this is not a, 
you know, uh, there is not a human in existence who is not made in the image of God. That's why we have these longings. And after all, there's not a human in existence who is not connected, for better or for worse, to a family. The worst of the family is not as it should be. It's deformity. Broken marriages, absent fathers, absent mothers, betrayal, abandonment, abuse, addiction, and the like. That's not the way that it should be. But praise be to God, the Father who sent His Son to make it the way it should be. That in all of our brokenness, there's not a, man, there's not a married man in this room who feels like, if, if you are in tune with the Spirit, there's not a married man in this room who feels like, I'm crushing it. I'm the bomb husband. No, you're not. There's not a son in this room who's like, I'm the bomb son. I'm so good at being son. There's not a wife in this room who got through last week unscathed. We're, we're, all, we're all sinners. So the message today isn't like, be a better family or you know, get more involved at church or work on your family issues. I mean, that's the law. That's what the law of God calls us to do. But the gospel is telling us, hey, that stuff you didn't do, behold the one who came and did it for you. The message of Christianity isn't do, 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 and then God will love you. The message of Christianity is done because He chose to first love you. Discarded, in the mud, in blood, unwanted, He rescued you and brought you home and washed you off and clothed you and gave you a family. And now we come to His table. We say, thank you, Father, for what you've done. Forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. There are many. Equip us. Pour your Spirit out on Delray Church that we would be a, a, a family who is committed to being adoption workers, to reconciling the world to Him. It's a family affair. It takes a family to do this. It's not on any one person's shoulders in this room. It's on us. It's a shared responsibility. This is our family business, Delray Church. And the business begins on our knees in worship. So let's respond to God's Word in worship. Come to the community table. Pour our hearts out to Him in prayer and cry out to Him in song. First, let me pray. We'll sing and then come to the table. Father, thank You that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, thank You that before You even made Adam and Eve, before the foundations of the world, You chose a family for Yourself. Father, forgive us for thinking that we were little cute orphan annies that you picked because we were so, so dang adorable. We didn't want you. We didn't deserve you. We didn't have it coming. But God, you were so good to give us new hearts so that we do want you, to transform our minds so that we can't get enough of you, to, to, to call us into your family business, giving us a purpose. You're restoring and making all things new in your Son, and He is the first piece of the new creation, and you are making us a new creation in Him. We come to the table today, this family table, and we thank you, Father, for the meal that you have prepared in your Son. Draw us to your Son. Draw us in repentance and faith, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.